Welcome to episode 28 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichiboy. Chapter 28 Despair. As Judy gets through her one more Christmas, I'm hearing rumblings that she isn't doing well. Although I'd moved out of my parents' home more than three years earlier, I still see some of my dad's colleagues socially and have dinner most Sundays at my parents' place, where I get to hear what some of the TPM patients, those I've met through my research work or socially, are up to. I notice the worry in the air over Judy. One Sunday, February 3rd, 1991 to be exact, my parents' white wall phone shrills its old-fashioned ring. Can you get that? Mom yells from somewhere. I run. Hello? I answer breathlessly. Is Jeech there? I can hear the worry in the man's voice. Yes, he is. I'll go get him. I shout, Dad! No answer. I put the phone down on the Formica kitchen table and shout again. Dad pokes his head out of his office. It's for you, I yell up the stairs at him. Who is it? Dad asks. I don't know. Oh, he clunks down the stairs and picks up the phone. Hello? Jeege, it's Cliff. Oh, hello. Jeege, it's Judy. She's real bad. His voice cracks. Jeege, she's going to die. She's going to be dead in an hour. Only minutes earlier, as Cliff had walked into TGH for his weekly visit, he'd been thinking she's coming home. Instead, he finds her bloated, pale, and semi-conscious, imprisoned between the side rails of her bed. What? You gotta do something. Calm down. What exactly is the problem? Last week, she was healthy, Jeej. She was coming home. Now she's gained 75 pounds in water in a week, Jeej. And they've done nothing. Nothing. They've just given her morphine for her pain. If she's only getting narcotics, I think that's inappropriate. You gotta do something. Well, if you want me to do something, you transfer her to me. I cannot believe that they've let her get that bad. They have. Look, have the intern call me. Okay. Cliff rousts the nurse to get the resident to call Jeej, and then he phones Marlene. When she answers, his fear of losing Judy tumbles out of him in incoherent speech. Marlene labors to understand him. She assures him that the decision to move Judy is theirs and that she supports it but she reminds him that St. Mike's does not have staff other than Jeej first in TPN patient care. If he should leave to lecture outside of the country, Cliff agrees, but asserts, Judy will die this way. He hangs up to call their other TPN friends. Marlene replaces the receiver and turns to her husband, Eric. She asks rhetorically how Judy could have deteriorated in only two days when she'd almost been ready to go home when Marlene saw her last. Months and months of caring for Judy from home, from TGH, from St. Mike's, has worn Marlene down. She doesn't know what else to do. Within the hour, an ambulance speeds Judy through the near-empty streets to St. Mike's, where she is wheeled straight to her room on 5B at 5.45 p.m. Cliff and Judy wait for Jeej. New voices penetrate the silence of the floor. Cliff turns his head expectantly toward the door as Jeej steps inside the room resident and nurses in tow. Oh my God, what in hell have they done to you? 
horror at Judy's condition having forced the exclamation out of his mouth, Jeej regains his professional control and examines her. He sees a brighter than beet red G-tube sight, eroded fat, exposed muscle, and a glistening stomach through the maw. He sees a rash bubbling down her side, on her back, and over her buttocks. The rash is cellulitis. He smells rotting flesh. She has sepsis. Jeej pulls Judy's gown back down and the, and the sheet up over her. He steps back to face both her and Cliff and pauses to think. The little group of patient, husband, resident, and nurses watch Jeej, waiting for him to speak. You have sepsis. Seeing the puzzled looks on Judy and Cliff's faces, he explains his condition rapidly and matter-of-factly. Sepsis is a generalized infection. The measures I'm going to prescribe shortly are designed to bring the sepsis under control and eradicate the source of the infection. You see, the bacterial toxins in a septic person secrete cytokines, which dilate the blood vessels, change the permeability of the capillaries walls so that they leak, and cause widespread damage to the major organs. This is a very serious inflammation. It can spread and become quite a serious problem. If sepsis isn't brought under control, it can lead to multi-system organ failure from these leaky capillaries. MSOF is a serious problem. Leaky capillaries in the kidneys reduce perfusion in the kidneys, which affects the electrolyte balance and urine output and leads to renal failure, kidney failure. You see? Leaky capillaries in the skin cause the fluid in the blood vessels to ooze into the spaces between the skin cells, swelling the skin, a condition called edema. When capillaries leak into the heart, they flood the heart muscle with fluid, congesting the heart and reducing the volume of blood the heart pumps in and out. This problem causes the heart to beat faster, but with more effort because the muscle itself is congested, leading to cardiac, that is, heart, failure. Capillaries also leak into the brain, reducing the volume of blood and the quantity of vital glucose to brain cells, as well as swelling the spaces between the cells, squeezing them together and leading to confusion and eventual unconsciousness. We want to avoid that. Leaky capillaries in the liver, which metabolizes nutrients, reduce the liver's protein production and skew its metabolism, causing hepatic or liver failure. Leaky capillaries in the stomach alter the stomach's lining in such a way that the acid is able to eat away at the stomach, and the stomach bleeds. You see? Lastly, leaky capillaries can drown the lungs. This is called pulmonary failure. Now, we don't understand this process of MSOF very well but I'm going to try and prevent it from happening to you. What he neglects to add is that although doctors usually kill the infection, the catalyst of MSOF, the process that infection starts kills a victim 80% of the time. He continues, I'm getting Dr. Suter in to see you in case it requires some incision and draining. The concern I have is that I don't quite know how to heal it because there is a foreign body there. There is a tube there, and the tube will keep the inflammation going. And yet I can't take the tube out, because if I take it out, there is not a way by which your stomach could drain, you see? So this is a serious problem. What are you going to do to me? Judy Blossom questions. How are you going to heal me? Am I going to get better? Are you going to do any painful things? She fears most the NG tube. Whatever you do, don't put that in. I can't promise you that. I don't know if I can tolerate the added pain of the procedures. How long am I going to be in hospital? When can I go home? She takes a breath, and Jeej answers as best he can, knowing that she's deeply worried that she's more sick than she should be, and that she's not going to get better, knowing that normally she views her illness more as an opportunity for the staff to inflict discomfort upon her 
than as a gateway to death. He flies into action. He has his residents, doctors Baxton and Lily, administer antibiotics to fight the cellulitis, and he has a dreaded NG tube put in because the G tube cannot drain the secretions spilling out of her stomach fast enough. He telephones Suter to discuss her G tube, and he relays to Judy and Cliff the two options the doctors see. They can put a tube down her nose and suck her stomach contents out, then remove the G tube and allow it to drain. Or they can insert a balloon in the fistula between the duodenum and the colon so that the gastric juices will flow out that way, obviating the need for the G-tube. The doctors prefer the second option because then they can take the foreign body out permanently. But Judy fears the risk and newness of the procedure. She goes with the first. Jeej leaves to talk to Suter, the surgeon, and Judy has a chat with the residents and nurses buzzing round her informing them that she knows her disease, knows her pain, and knows when she needs pain meds and in what amounts. They agree on Baxton setting the parameters and the nurses giving her morphine when she requests it. At 9 p.m., while Lily starts a new normal solution for her TPN line and the nurses insert peripheral IV lines for the antibiotics and pepsid, Baxton fills her wound with duoderm granules. The tiny hygroscopic tapioca-like particles of this absorbent powder soak up the pussy secretions while protecting the wound, healing it from the bottom up instead of just superficially at the top. Every now and then a resident or nurse scoops out the old granules and pours in fresh ones. With each change the wound cleans up and the inflammation shrinks. Monday dawns. Cliff leaves to pace in the hall when Suter arrives with Baxton and sundry interns to examine and change her G-tube at 10.30 a.m. He inserts a larger sump drain and sutures it to the flange. The sump drain works by pumping air into one tube and sucking the stomach contents out the other. Suter's team places a slim barrier dressing around the G-tube. It decreases the secretions oozing out of her and collects them neatly in a bag. A nurse escorts Marlene into the room in the middle of this procedure. She and Suter talk about what's been happening since the fall and whether a new drain she's learned about at the just-finished Aspen conference one that drains both the stomach and the duodenal loop, will help. Marlene agrees to buy it from the Canadian distributor when she gets back to her TGH office. Everyone but Marlene leaves. She sits down beside Judy, and Judy weeps torrentially. She's in so much pain. She's scared. She feels it's all so undignified. The system has let her down. She's falling through the cracks. How can this happen? Why did nobody do anything at TGH? Why can her G-tube not be fixed? Why does she have such a massive infection? What's going to happen to her? To her catheter? She rages about TGH's utter lack of care. Yet she's grateful that Jeej had her transferred and that finally someone is caring for her. Marlene coaxes Judy to tell her what had happened on Saturday and Sunday. But Judy's terror drowns her ability to hear and respond. She fears for the future of the TPN program and her fellow H-Penners. Who is going to care for them with GH at St. Mike's and the funding restricted to TGH? Are they always going to fall between the cracks? She dreads her future. She gets angry. Her tears fall as fast as her gastric secretions stream out. The nurses, in and out through all of this, try to alleviate her pain. Cliff returns, and his distress mingles with Judy's as he repeats over and over to Marlene how he just had to do something. He'd done the only thing he knew to do to save Judy's life. He'd called Jeej. Judy's sobs stop. 
Cliff's retelling of his part stops. It's quiet. I've resigned, Marlene tells them. We've lost Jeej. Now we are losing you? What are you we going to do? Judy wails. After this, Judy, it doesn't matter whether I have a job or not. I would have quit today. Today is Marlene's last straw. Judy had lain in one of Canada's top hospitals, deteriorating visibly over the weekend under the eyes of the staff. The resident's response was to pronounce this case difficult and to wait until Monday to consult with Jeej and the new head of the TPN program. The nurses had never called Marlene about Judy's deterioration or asked her to help. Judy's right. The system had failed, and not for the first time. Marlene is exhausted trying to anticipate where the system will fail next and to patch the leaks before they spread into puddles and floods. Around noon, an orderly pushes in a wheelchair to take Judy for chest and abdominal x-rays. Marlene and Cliff leave. When the orderly pushes her back into her room, one of her TPN friends, Mary Bigelow, is waiting. The orderly parks her next to her bed and walks out. Judy asks Mary to help her back into bed. Mary tries, but she cannot maneuver the dead weight of Judy's slumped body. Her mind boggles that this huge, helpless woman is Judy. She finds someone to help her and stays with Judy for a while. To all the lifeliners, Judy is an independent, strong woman who fights illness with vigor and determination. But this woman cannot help herself. She's frightened and despondent and pleads with Mary not to leave. For four hours, Judy tells her tale and describes the mess they made of her at TGH. Judy wonders how much more she can endure. She questions if life is worth this level of suffering. Mary listens to this Judy, one she has never known before, and leaves only when Cliff returns. With Cliff at her side, Jeej directing her care, friends visiting regularly and listening to her venting, the nurses caring for her actively, and the residents constantly checking on her progress and changing her medications or creams if they feel something else will heal her faster or better. She feels safer, taken care of, and loved. Her stress drops, her emotions quieten. Slowly, slowly, she starts to mend. Julie decides uncharacteristically to call her mother on Tuesday instead of the usual Saturday. The person on the phone at TGH tells Julie that her mom has been transferred to St. Mike's, and Julie tracks her down. Judy thrills to hear her daughter's whispery voice. She retells her tale and ends with an upbeat assurance that she's coming home in two weeks but she cannot keep her despondency from seeping out. She cannot even answer Julie's questions as to what to tell Miriam. She leaves it up to her. Meanwhile, Miriam had called TGH on Sunday and receiving no answer had tried again on Monday. Then she had phoned her parents' place. There was no answer. Eventually she calls Julie. Julie hesitates. Then she blurts out that she doesn't know if she's supposed to tell Miriam where mom is, but she does. No one telephones Cindy. Judy, who always calls her eldest daughter whenever she's in hospital, does not this time. And Cliff, knowing it's cruel, just cannot deal with her and with Judy at the same time. He's too overwhelmed. He only wants Judy. By Wednesday, Judy's emotional crisis is over, and by Thursday, she is feeling jaunty. She walks up and down the hallway twice, peeking into adjoining rooms and picking up all the hospital gossip. She talks to Miriam on the phone and blithely reassures her that she does not need to visit. 
knowing how busy she is helping her boyfriend to pack and move. She wants Miriam to be happy, not pressured by a complaining mother. Nevertheless, Miriam visits after dinner to Judy's delight. Judy shares her tale with her daughter, and after having exhausted that topic, asks Miriam about the school she's teaching at, her boyfriend, her finances, her new house, and her feelings about all that. She asks her to bring wallpaper samples down for her to see, and suggests she'll drop by when they release her. Her eyes don't leave her daughter's face, and her smile doesn't stop. The hours fly by. Miriam says that she'll visit again and will bring her boyfriend. Judy bases in the afterglow of the visit and cogitates about how she'll keep Cliff from seeing the boyfriend. She, like Cliff, does not approve of him, but she isn't about to let anyone get in between her and Miriam. She brings it up with Julie during their Saturday call. She worries about the friction between Cliff and Miriam and really hopes Miriam will visit weekly. Judy tells her about St. Mike's and then asks to speak to her grandchildren. Her voice soars and her laughter rumbles as she talks to each in turn about their latest antics. Feeling that Judy is safe, Cliff heads home on Sunday after ensuring that Mary, Judy's quote-unquote Sunday babysitter, arrives before he heads out into the bitter cold. The two women plan the upcoming trip to the 1991 Oli Conference and laugh themselves silly over old road trip stories. They remember the time Judy got out of bed in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and knocked the lamp over the bed, flipping the glass shade onto her head like a hat. Then they remember when the hotel fire alarm roused them from sleep and sent them running outside in their nightgowns with their IV poles. After the laughter dies, Judy's worries crowd in again. She talks about Cliff's nerves and frets about how to end his depression. She wonders about how she can bridge the void between Cliff and Miriam and Cindy. She hopes he's looking after himself properly and eating well and she misses Bandit, her furry baby, a small dog. This, Judy, Mary knows. On Monday, restlessness takes over. Judy cries when she sees Miriam walk in with Jeej. She wants the NG tube out, and she wants out. They listen. They bolster her spirits and allay her fears. Jeej promises to look into taking out the NG tube. The next day, she gets her wish. After it slithers up her throat and down her nose and out, the relief at feeling nothing relaxes her immeasurably. Her strength returns. Her skin heals to a healthy pink. It's no longer tender. It's dry and intact. For the first time since 1970, Judy's G-tube site closes completely. For the first time in 20 years and four months, no acid bites into her skin. Several months earlier, Jeej had agreed to speak at a conference in Belgium and another in Scotland. Since his wife, my mother, had not seen her sister Pat, who lives in Lincolnshire, England, in six years, they had decided to nip over after the Scottish conference. Mum worries about Auntie Pat's poor health. Because of the way England's health system is set up, Auntie Pat has no choice in which doctor she can see, even if he is completely incompetent. To make matters worse, English patients don't question their all-knowing physicians. The only time she's received good treatment was when her GP was on holidays and his temporary replacement looked after her. Mum plans on intervening. Auntie Pat's situation is much like Judy's. Both are denied their choice of physician purely for economic and political reasons, not for medical ones. They discuss if he should still go, but Judy is doing so well and the staff is so attentive that he thinks it'll be okay. Also, Mum is anxious to see her sister. 
As usual, mom leaves their itinerary, hotels, and phone numbers with us, her children, in case of an emergency. The only problem in communication would occur when they are at Auntie Pat's because her phone prevents people from making outgoing calls. They would have to rely on people calling in to keep him informed. Before he leaves on Friday, Jeej examines Judy one last time. She doesn't want him to leave. He assures her he'll be in telephone contact and that the residents will be able to track him down any time she needs him. She has faith only in him. She's nervous about other doctors running things. She doesn't know the St. Mike staff as well as the TGH staff. And though she likes the people helping her, no one replaces Jeej. Plus, she cannot leave the hospital until he returns in two weeks. She reluctantly watches Jeej leave. She feels bereft. Judy hears a noise at the door. It's Julie. In her angst, Judy unloads on Julie in a way she hasn't done before. She feels too weak for Jeej to leave. She wishes Cliff would stay more often, even though she knows he has to return to work. She doesn't understand why Miriam won't visit more. Then she broods that Miriam and her boyfriend will show up while Cliff is with her. She's tried to arrange visits to avoid that because she doesn't want any attention. She doesn't know how she's made it this far. Before she came here, the pain had been eating away at her sanity. She thought she'd lose her mind. She thought she'd tear her hair out. She asked Julie to refill her glass. As at TGH, Judy ruminates about the political situation at St. Mike's. The administration is shutting down certain wards and sections. While lying in bed, hearing the ambulances scream in and reports over the PA system, and listening to people trot up and down the hallways, Judy has questioned why anyone would cut back beds when they are needed desperately. The number of beds ought to match the number of people who need them, not satisfy some bean counter's numbers, she asserts. Julie never knows quite how Judy has acquired her intimate knowledge of the hospital's political and economic state when she is so ill. Julie stays with her all day, and Miriam joins them at 6.30 p.m. Judy sees her two daughters together with her and doesn't want them to go, but she's tired, and the night is drawing to a close. Julie returns Saturday for a brief visit before catching the bus home to Bob Cajun. During the second visit, Judy focuses on Julie. Is Gordon still working? How are the kids' report cards? Julie answers in few words, as is her nature. Judy continues to talk as Julie puts on her coat and hat and mittens, asking her to convince Cliff to stay the next time he comes to Toronto. Judy walks down the labyrinthine hallway with Julie to the elevator. As Julie pushes the button, Judy repeats, When you go home, phone your dad and try and talk him into staying down. Julie steps into the elevator. Judy says, I love you and always will. The elevator door is shut. She turns and walks slowly back to her room. She pauses at the nurse's station to chat a bit and remarks that she is thirsty. She continues into her room and climbs into bed. She pulls the bed tray closer to her and laboriously prints letters to her grandchildren and to Julie telling them of her undying love. Her writing, always so neat and perfect, is now childlike, and it slips down off the small pages. You have been listening to Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible 
podcast by the author Shireen Chichiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at chichiboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Chichiboy.